And thanks for joining us now on KVCR for KVC Arts, Arts and Entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. This edition of the program features jazz pianist Vijay Iyer. He's received critical acclaim from past releases, including his most recent, called Uneasy. We'll hear about several tracks from the disc, the musicians he's touring with, and a performance in the region soon. That's Saturday, November 5th at the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts in Costa Mesa with performances at 7 and 9 p.m. Uneasy. This is actually connected directly to a score for a ballet going back to 2011 or so? Yeah, that's right. That was a project I did in Central Park, the center stage here in New York with the choreographer Carol Armitage. It was probably like just the thrill of making music for dance and impulse and having that kind of spectacularly reinforced. <laughs> like we were on stage with the dancers and they would be like hurtling through the air and Landing on our downbeats, you know, <laughs> like wow. it was amazing wow. to experience. But I remember also, like that was a moment, like here in New York and also in the U.S. in general. Ten years after 9/11, sort of midway through the Obama years, and Carol and I to name the sort of feeling of that moment as uneasy. <laughs> so. And now when I think about it, like that's sort of been the tone of American life for the last 20 years, actually. Sometimes it's like putting it mildly. It's become quite dire and sort of apocalyptic moments, you know, moments when we wonder if this country will make it <laughs> through the next few years or whatever. But I think there was this sense that something was already afoot from the post 9-11 wars and treatment of immigrants, brown skinned immigrants in particular, both from the Middle East and South Asia, and also Latino immigrants, we sort of created to this terrifying sense of what we are a part of. And I think sometimes it's like, how do you create as an artist in the face of that and express the exuberance of, like I said, of making music and dance together, but to also capture something dark beneath the surface. So that was kind of what that was about. That piece that became the title track somehow connected to all of that. I think even before that I had read that it was connected to, I think I'm quoting the contradictions and swirling undercurrents of the Obama era, I had already felt with uneasy. Now the title alone makes a person almost automatically feel this. It reads it into it for you, but the very opening and slow build, it's really like gently walking through a spooky forest or a haunted mansion. And I guess any way we look at it, it's treading quietly and carefully at the same time. That's what comes out with uneasy. Yes, and then it kind of explodes into something else. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yes. But it was also kind of the particular relationship in it that are tense and sort of unresolved, as they feel unresolved. So it was about how that could speak to something sinister underneath the surface. You feel it. There are a few tunes on here that are especially evocative.
disc opens up with Children of Flint and my quick notes, a very accessible tune, which really makes me think of one that was not so much written, but realized. And I'm not sure if I can say that a different way, but first, can we hear about the title before how this tune even came to be? This is Flint, Michigan. Yes, and it was very much dedicated to that community and to those children. And I did approach it as something I would feel comfortable sharing with children, with those children, you know, and there is a sort of melancholy in it. It started earlier when I, in fall of 2019, I was commissioned to write a solo viola piece and I decided to give the commission money to flintkids.org which is an organization supporting that community in the aftermath of that lead poisoning of the water like several years ago now. The repercussions are still ongoing. So I written this solo viola piece and then something I wrote by renting a viola I grew up playing violin so I could figure out how to play it there's a passage in there that's like 16 measures that used this harmonic progression that kind of haunted me even after the fact like I felt like there was unfinished business with it or something like it kind of was asking to be unpacked further so that's when I wrote this melody across it that became this song you know like I was trying to square this with what you said earlier How'd you say it again? It was less written than more. Uh, let me see. Uh, it made me think of one that was not so much written, but realized. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those pretty intuitive moments, I guess I would say. Sometimes when you experience a moment of inspiration, it kind of happens outside of normal time. Yeah. It may have been like that, yeah. You know, talking about the children of Flint and the lead poisoning and all that's gone on in Flint, Michigan, you know, I'm working without liner notes and anything here. So on the disc itself, is there any detail given on this, or is it really just the hopes that people will read, really, the word Flint and be perhaps compelled to learn more about everything which has gone on there with this very melancholy accompaniment? Oh, yeah, I wrote it sort of more general, and it was like, this was like put together during the pandemic recorded in 2019, but mixed and kind of finalized the album summer of 2020 when it felt like we didn't know what was going to happen, you know? Right. There's also a time of mass uprising, and so I think I just addressed those themes more generally. I didn't specify, but I don't think like, okay, well, if anybody ever wanted to know what that was about, they could look it up and they'd find something. And often when I perform it live, I'll mention that and even ask people to give money to flintkids.org, <laughs> which, you know, it's a way to redirect the energy in a positive way. I'll be coming back and forth between sequencing here and there. That's just because it's something that fascinates me. It's very much like putting together a radio program. You know, you're assembling music and deciding what goes where and to give it a certain flow. So there were really several which could be great openers. What grabbed you about Children of Flint to make this the one to introduce people or to take people into this journey? You know, it's funny. So this is on ECM Records, which is headed by this legendary German producer named Manfred Eicher. And many details of the production are done in dialogue with him. And sometimes he's very hands-on. But with this one, it was really like, because we ended up mixing here in New York during the pandemic, we weren't able to have him in the room with us. But the sequencing was still something that he weighed in on pretty intently. And it's always a conversation that I understand what his strategies are. I've come to learn over, this is now my seventh album for ECM. And I remember I posed one idea for the sequence and we went back and forth about a couple of different things and then he had suggested opening with this one. 
I wanted to open with combat breathing, actually, because that felt to me like a sort of parting the curtains with a certain kind of oh, yeah. intensity and swagger and sort of defiant hope, I guess it might be. Mm. And he suggested starting with this one, I think partly because he liked the song, he liked the melody and he liked the kind of lyricism of it, but also because he felt... I remember the word he used, which really caught me off guard. He said, it gives it more elasticity. Oh. <laughs> I was trying to imagine what that could mean but then I sat with it and yeah it's true like it welcomes you in gently and then it's a very emotional place but it's a little mysterious and seems to kind of be full of portent or something and then it leads into combat breathing and then we're sort of off to the races <laughs> oh my god yeah so that was actually a interesting lesson for me about how to invite the listener into the space with you sure not jump right in with the statement that we're trying to make or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, with, the, with the sort of, like, overpowering kind of sentiment or feeling or intensity, you know. just go right to combat breathing uh, either this or entrustment would be my favorites on this collection of tunes here now it starts with something that feels almost like a prelude to the song but i suspect it's just a thinly textured intro so again with curious titling uh, this references eric garner i believe yes the phrase is from france Fanon. actually it was written in 2014 as the soundtrack to a protest action that year was the beginning of the movement for black lives. And that was a year full of tragedy, you know, Michael Brown, yeah. Tamir Rice, Eric Garner. And not just the fact that those had happened, but that they were all publicly documented to different degrees, you know, whether it was video footage or photos or whatever, plus the aftermath of each one. It was just a season of major protest, you know, well before 2020, you know. And so, yeah, it was written to support this protest that I was a part of that was conducted by this group called Dancing While Black, this group of black choreographers mm. here in New York. So like the music was made with this function in mind, with this purpose of ah. like, helping this particular kind of protest action unfold. And so that's kind of why it has the shape that it has, and also why it has the kind of energy and intensity that it has. Yes. Those intro moments are sort of like a modified blues one. Oh, wow. The whole front section before the bass solo. It's an 11 bar blues and it's in 11. And the number 11 was significant in the murder of Eric Garner. So, oh, oh um, yes, yes. So I wanted to kind of index that and try to pay homage to him in a subtle way, but in a way that's very real to us. 
So like what I do in the beginning, funny thing about playing with Tyshawn and Linda is that they hear literally everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like their, their ears are kind of off the charts. It's amazing in terms of they both have perfect pitch and they can always just track what I'm doing. So I could just start playing a form. They know what it is. They know where I am. They know what's happening and they can jump in. So that's kind of how that opens is that I just step into the form of the piece and then they come in like gangbusters. So, so much of it makes sense now. This dance collective, which performed, they did sort of a die-in. I heard it written as a die-in on stage. Were there indeed visuals in your head for what could be presented through other art forms, namely dance in this case? The piece was choreographed to your work, but did they actually grow together? Yeah, I mean, it was like the die-in actually preceded music and then the music. Mm. Well, we actually called it, it wasn't merely a diet because there were members of the group who said, well, I don't want to actually just take this lying down. I want to stand up and face them. So that's what we called it, dying in and standing up. So it starts by giving them an invitation to stand up and then there's movement that happens across the rest of it, which it was actually that all of their movements were derived from their interactions with police. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was very clear what it was about, you know, what it was addressing. And yeah, it had this kind of ambush quality to it because no one was expecting it when they walked in the door. Back now with KVC Arts, I'm David Fleming in conversation with Vijay Iyer. We are hearing about his newest release called Uneasy, and he'll be in the region quite soon. Uneasy, one of the tunes, Retrofit. My main note on that one was that, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's what feels like a severely different time signature between the piano and the drums, but I have to point out, though, that it didn't seem like they were fighting for attention. Did you really have something of severely different going on that just comes together about every <laughs> 64th measure? <laughs> That's funny. Well, Tyshawn is a master of illusion in that way. So he's oh, okay. able to be with you and yet kind of trick the ear into <laughs> thinking that things are just more discrepant than they are. So yeah, there is a bit of, the way that's written, there is a bit of displacement going on in there. Okay, well it felt like, I mean, at first it, it was nowhere near four on the floor and never will be, thankfully, but at the same time, yeah, so he's not only keeping the rhythm, but he's throwing in, or it felt like, as you said, this master of illusion, After we hang up, I'm probably going right back to Retrofit to give it another listen. It's what made me actually think of Dave Brubeck, and I'm not comparing you to Brubeck, and this piece, it's not reminiscent of him through and through, but are there ever any times, you know, on this album or not, where you really are indeed trying to play in the spirit of one particular artist or another? Huh. I don't exactly, like, try to play like somebody else. I certainly study 
a lot of musicians and try to internalize certain approaches, but I never try to do something verbatim that some other musician did. So I think what it really is is maybe there are homages, you know. It's funny that you mentioned Brubeck because I've never thought of him as a major influence, but I remember when I first met Anthony Braxton in 1999, we were on the same festival in Italy. After our set, he came backstage like raving about how much he enjoyed it, how much he heard going on. He was so generous and effusive. It was like, it actually brought tears to my eyes. I I couldn't believe it. But one of the points of reference for him was Brubeck too. And it was like, I couldn't really hear that at the time, but then I thought back and then listened back, in fact, because I was trying to make sense of that later. And I was like, what's he talking about (laughs) exactly? (laughs) And I think the sort of, composerly sensibility that he brought to the quartet format, you know, in particular. And, like, that was the same group that I brought to that festival, the same group that's on Panoptic Roads, in fact. Yeah, there was this sort of uh, way of organizing the music that was, like, very ideas-driven, but also very rhythmically driven. So it's kind of like it has, again, that dance quality, but it also has, there's a certain kind of conceptual consistency going on. And that's kind of what I took from that, you know, from that conversation and that encounter and that reference, you know. I'm not sure how similar I sound now to then. I definitely wouldn't have ever put Dave Brubeck and you in the same sentence, really, unless I was really doing a compare and contrast. But for whatever reason, Retrofit really made me think of it. In Costa Mesa on Saturday, November 5th at the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts, you'll be in not with uh, Linda and Tyshawn, uh, as we were just speaking about, but you'll have with you Jeremy Dutton on drums and Matt Brewer on bass. Who are Matt and Jeremy, I guess, to you that they were picked for this tour or performance beyond, well, they were available? <laughs> oh, well, I've worked with both of them quite a bit. In fact, we've toured as a trio a couple times this year in Europe. And I've worked with Matt for more than 10 years. I've worked with Jeremy for maybe six years. They're also two of the best in the business, you know, really spectacular musicians. Matthew Brewer plays with all kinds of people. He's like on Gonzalo Rucava's new album. He's played with Jeff Tane Watts, and he's in the SF Jazz Collective. He's played with so many heavyweights, you know, he's like a real deal. I guess he started out playing a lot with Greg Osby when he was quite young, like when he was a teenager, and when he first hit New York. But he's really an exceptional musician. He's thought a lot about rhythm and about what the bass can do. And he, you know, he studied like the whole history of the bass, like from Kachow to Ron Carter to Jimmy Garrison. Mm. You know, and you can hear that wisdom in everything he does. And then he's also just a brilliant soloist and a great team player. Jeremy, I met him when he was 18, which is probably about 10 years ago, and I was really impressed. He came to that math program that I mentioned back in 2013, and and yeah, I was very impressed when I first heard him, and then he came to New York, and I started hearing him around town, and then after we made the Sex 10 album, it became hard for Tyshawn to tour much with us because he was so busy doing his own thing. So then kind of investigated possibilities, and I realized that Jeremy would be amazing for the job. And so we toured a lot with the sextet with him from 17 to 19. I mean, I played with him on every continent, actually. Mm, cool. <laughs> Except Antarctica, and we didn't play there yet. <laughs> but all the other continents we did. 
I've been all over the world with him. We've done a lot of trio music together. He's a really exciting musician. He's got a lot of wisdom about groove. He's very colorful. You know, deals with texture and touch and mm. stuff with like real finesse. And he's got a lot of power as well. He's from Houston originally. He went to that same high school that all of these folks went to, HSPVA, performing arts high school there. That like Glass Bear and Beyonce and Jason Bowen, oh, okay. Kenneth Scott, all these people went to. Oh. And yeah, and he plays a lot with like Joel Ross and James Francis and these younger guys. We've been on this journey together for a while now. So yeah, I somehow I'm lucky to have a nice community of musicians who really uh, challenge me, you know, who really step up to the plate and bring a lot to the table and make my music better. <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah. You know, I don't think anyone who's ever talked about playing on every single continent, they've never bothered to point out that they didn't really include Antarctica. <laughs> so that... There's no, no one started the jazz club there yet. <laughs> well, it'll be a I cold day in. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, gosh. makes me think of you had 15 some years on western classical training on violin beginning quite early age three or so i think your piano though that was really i think all by ear or mostly by ear and you're mostly self-taught on that and which you're known for now so what i'm wondering really vijay is that's with the fact that you spent a lot of time exploring the piano rather than formal lessons do you think this lent itself to jazz and improv, the fact that it was an exploration rather than a set of notes stacked a certain way? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's definitely what made it resonate with me, you know. And I'll never forget when I first saw footage of Thelonious Monk playing, which was, <laughs> you know, that was my first chance at this, was in the film Straight No Chaser, which came out in like 88 or yeah. 89. And that was, you know, by then I was already... You know, I was already yeah, like right. listening to Monk a lot. Actually, I was like really into him, but seeing him play was like, oh, this really speaks to me. You know, it feels so alive and so interactive and so exploratory. You know, his relationship to the piano was that. It was like, what can I make it do today? You know, it was really yeah. that. You can see him kind of discovering things as he goes. You know, you can see him. Oh, completely. You know, like reacting to what the piano just did, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and it was just such an embodied relationship for him. And I could totally relate to that. You know, I didn't fully understand everything he was doing. I don't know if anyone ever will, but I've studied him for decades now, <laughs> you know, like that is the pinnacle as far as I'm concerned. He's like one of the greatest artists in any genre of the 20th century. I will always draw inspiration from him. So that was like a revelation for me because it was sort of like, it sort of validated, I felt at that time. I felt validated. I felt like what I was doing had a right to exist, you know. Wow, nice. Yeah, you see Monk, it's one thing to listen to him and hear him sort of playing in between and approaching the main statement of a song. But then when you see him, not only do you see his feet shuffling about madly almost at times, 
well, then inevitably sometimes he will stand up and just start turning circles in the middle of the stage. I believe that maybe on that film, I have straight notes, and I'm not sure if that's where that comes from or not, but that I saw him do that. But yes, when you're lucky, you get to see him at the keyboard. You get to see his fingers on the keyboard and see what is going on as he's sort of approaching a note rather than hitting the one that he knows needs to be there. I would really like to, I mean, well, I'll be seeing you at the Segerstrom uh, very soon, but I really want to see you in a small club setting where I can actually watch your hands uh, sometime in the future. <laughs> I'm always a little alarmed to see my hands, like whenever I see footage of my hands. I'm oh. <laughs> like, I'm like, what is that? What is going on? <laughs> oh. It always looks weird. I mean, because I'm playing through them, you know, not, and because, like, the technique is kind of, what would you say, self-styled or something, or self-fashioned. It's a little weird. It's a little awkward and like not all that efficient even, you know. But it's also like given rise to certain things that I'm not sure I would have found otherwise, you know. I did see some video clip of you fairly recently that made me even think about that very thing. There's a guitarist, Jeff Linsky, who speaks greatly about not just hitting the notes, but moving in between the notes and how to accomplish that and that's really when i see your hands that's what i'm seeing you're not just hitting the c you're hitting right before the c you're just bumping into it and it's just it's a really cool <laughs> i know yeah that's a great technical term there you know use that one in class. <laughs> no i like it but that's what makes it work too and that's what makes it stylistically your own For this edition of KVC Arts, it's been conversation with and music from Vijay Iyer, namely his most recent disc, Uneasy. Vijay will be at the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts in Costa Mesa Saturday, November 5th with 7 and 9 p.m. performances. We'll hear more about Uneasy on the next KVC Arts. Thanks again to Vijay Iyer and here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, Paulina Garcia, and Sharina Wad. Many past KVC Arts programs can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. And thanks as well if you were a part of our fall membership campaign. We didn't quite hit our goal, but we did get close thanks to you. If you meant to give but didn't get to it, you still can at kvcrnews.org or by phone 877 877- 512-8843-877-512-8843 or kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Thanks for listening and for your support. <laughs> <laughs>